0: Welcome to the Community Development Podcast. A podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. Welcome to episode 33, and it's a warm welcome to the podcast. She is only about a mile or two as the crow flies from where I'm sitting in Cardiff, in Wales. It's Kimberly Jones. How are you, Kimberly? Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Russell. Thanks for having me on.
0: Now, we're going to be talking about a project called Grief Space that you run in Cairo and Ely. Uh, For an organisation called ACE, A-C-E, which stands for Action in Cairo and Ely, a district in in the the western um, part of of Cardiff, the city of Cardiff. You work for ACE, but you're a Macmillan professional. So Macmillan will be a name that people are familiar with in the UK as a cancer charity. Tell us a little bit about your role.
1: So, um, as you mentioned, my role then um, is based at ACE, Action Cairo and Ely. It is funded through Macmillan so I'm classed as a Macmillan professional and my role really is to, as a community development worker, explore how we might be able to use community development approaches to respond to death, dying and bereavement at a local level.
0: And it's probably important to say that you know, we will be talking about death, dying, grief, bereavement, things like that. So, if there is the need to, so again, so there's probably the need to make it clear that um, you know if any of these issues are triggering for for you as a listener, um, just to let you know that in advance. Is that something you have to? You probably do that. You know, generally during the course of your your, your work as well. But it's something that probably needs to be said for this as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that although it, you know, it's one of the things that we're, we're all going to experience um, firsthand and, and through family and friends, um, we have to be prepared and understand what we're talking about. And we will be talking about death and dying. And we'll be talking quite candidly about that, but more so in the sense of how people support each other throughout the grieving process. So we're not going to go into details necessarily about um, you know specifics around death and dying, but more so how we can support each other and and how really our society governs how we grieve during the loss of a loved one.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, when we talk about community development, we'll talk about you know forms of pre- oppression and discrimination and inequality and and trying to kind of bring people together to take collective action against things that affect them and that they want to see changed and improved. I can think of one or two instances where we've talked about or where the, where the topic of death and dying have, have maybe figured, but only ever really peripherally, I suppose. Although I do remember working on a project encouraging women to go for uh, breast screening appointments mm-hmm. where a lot of women were sort of, or the area was, was below the national average for, for attendance at, at breast screening appointments. And so clearly you know, cancer was in the background, I suppose, of, of those conversations and that project. It turned out to be very successful. But I don't think we ever can really confronted the dying and the death bit if I'm if I'm absolutely honest with you. For reasons that I'm sure we'll probably perhaps we will we will touch on in very much in terms of like you know how things are governed, as you say. But the, what what struck me was the level of just sort of almost that's just the 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 almost the banality of how many people in that community would refer to knowing somebody with or having had cancer. And that that struck me. And it's one of the, mm-hmm. the things that, one of the experiences that has really, I you know I, I find it incredibly memorable through 20 odd years, 20 plus years now of, of working in communities that level of banality, everybody more or less seemed to know somebody mm-hmm. who had cancer, experienced cancer, and in some cases, two or three people in the same family unit, the same household, such was the, the prevalence of it.
1: That statistic, um, I think it used to be, you know, years ago, one in four, then it was one in three, and it's now one in two people will be affected by cancer. So, like you said, it, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And if if it's not you or a personal loved one, then it's a friend or, you know, a friend of a friend. So everyone everyone is affected in sh- some shape or form and absolutely everyone, um, death and dying.
0: So to some extent, the frequency or the the commonness of it was actually something that we were able to tap into in terms of that project. And what the people locally, they could all kind of, because of that, I guess, that ease of, of relating to it, it was easy fairly straightforward to get people on board with the with the with the project and what we wanted to do and we used informed volunteers to counsel in inverted commas women that perhaps were a little bit reticent about going mm-hmm. um and one of the things that kind of cro- cropped up was you know almost like well is there any point in going for the screening because well I know so many people who will have breast cancer that, well, chances are I'll get it anyway. Do I need to be told I'm going to get mm-hmm. it or have it, you know? And again, that banality, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but um, and I'm certainly not judging people for thinking in, the, in these ways, did strike me quite a formative moment in my in my career. But there was an awful lot of brevity. There was a lot of laughing, I remember, mm-hmm. in that project. And I remember the local rugby team uh, for the season ended up inviting their opponents when they were hosting home games to bring um, a bra, and, of course, I you know had this fantastic situation where all these kind of big, rugged, burly rugby players were rocking up at the rugby club. And they ended up hanging these bras from the crossbar of the rugby posts. And so, again, you know, they're all kind of lined up under if they conceded a try or scored a try. You got all these burly rugby players lined up under this crossbar waiting for the conversion with all of these bras hanging <laughs> above them. And it was about trying to create some of that levity as well, I suppose, and to make it something that, that we could talk about and confront.
1: Absolutely, and it's take away the, the fear of it to a certain degree, to be able to say, we know it happens, uh, and, and, and this is with breast cancer or, or with death and dying, whatever it might be, we know it happens, but it's scary. Okay, so how do we make it more accessible? How do we find language that fits the situation that we're in? Mm. And if you've never been in that situation before, or, and or the first experience you have of cancer is through a GP or a um, you know a, a consultant or whoever it might be, that language is not always accessible, mm. or it always, it doesn't quite match up to how you're feeling. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a disconnect, and, and GPS and, and professionals are getting better at this and understanding this more. You know, we use jargon all the time without without even thinking about it. But I think that idea of I don't know having bras on the on, on the, the rugby posts it, it takes away the taboo, mm-hmm. doesn't it? It sort of says, look, we, we can we can do this, we can have this conversation. It's not as scary as sometimes we we think it might be. And we can have a laugh. It's one of the first things I, I say when I welcome people to grief space. You can laugh, you can cry, you can get angry, just don't flip any tables.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, incidentally, that, that, that example with the rugby club, it ended up morphing into discussions around male cancers, Mm -hmm. testicular prostate, for example. And again, that um, encouraging men to be a little bit more self-aware of their bodies and to to look for lumps and and, and things like that as well. So it ended up growing far beyond what we originally set out to do. Okay, enough about what I've done with rugby clubs and bras. Um, (laughs) um, Anybody listening to this is going to think, what the hell am I talking about? So grief space, the, the word space is quite deliberately used there, isn't it? So I'm creating that opportunity to bring people together the elephant in the room, perhaps, if I interpret what people, listeners might be thinking is, well, has this been informed primarily, almost exclusively by the pandemic and and the impact that that has had, certainly in terms of, of death and, uh, or at the very least, chronic illness for, for, for many people? Um, or is it something that was being delivered as a project or being discussed before the pandemic?
1: So it's really interesting, actually, this project was in the pipeline pre-pandemic and ace had applied for this funding so it was a tendered process um they applied for the funding well before um it would have been 2019 and i was going through the process of being interviewed and 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 got the job and was lucky enough to be um, accepted in that role and my start date my very first day was the 23rd of march 2020. Okay, so we'll all remember that day or most people remember that day is the day we went into that first lockdown. And that corresponded with my first day in post that was looking at a community response to death, dying and bereavement. And I went, oh, <laughs> this timing is... Uh, well, I don't even know what I thought, whether it was perfect or not perfect or, but it, it, you know, it was what it was. And that happened on, yeah, Monday, the 23rd of March. And so it was, it inevitably was governed by the pandemic Um, and one of the reasons that I set up grief space or it became a concept is that other services and other providers and other charities had to refocus efforts and most went down the route of offering telephone support on a one-to-one basis. Now as a community development worker and seeing and chatting to people in the community there was something missing OK, and it's that peer support, that shared experience, that storytelling, that, that element of connection with community was missing from that one-to-one support. It's um, absolutely needed bereavement counseling, absolutely um, needed to happen on a one-to-one basis for, for many, many people. But majority of people just want to be listened to, and that's not necessarily needed at a mm. level of, of, at a professional level. So that, that was kind of some of the context behind why I wanted to set up a peer bereavement support group. And initially we did that and um, we opted to use Zoom, that platform that we're all more than familiar with now. And that was because most people were either using it for work or they were using it for that family quizzes and all those sort of fun things yeah. at the, uh, that we tried to put in place to keep us sane and, and, and connected. But for me, the key factors was, was Zoom was free and it was accessible. So yeah, initially we were very much governed by the pandemic. It was set up to be an online peer bereavement support group. It has now morphed into to a group that meets on a weekly basis in person. But again, that's been governed by COVID restrictions. So um, we have an outdoor space which is covered and has heaters and we have blankets and um, you know, we have to wash the blankets at a certain level and um, make sure everything's clean and sanitized. So it's definitely been shaped and, and morphed throughout the past, gosh, how long has it been? Almost two years now.
0: And what, what does the role of a, of a community organisation like ACE bring to this? Because presumably Macmillan as a national kind of UK cancer charity is well-resourced and has structures and, and all the rest of that, and certainly the, the expertise and the, you know, the professional expertise in these things. But there seems to be a particular logic to why a community organisation is being partnered with then, if that's the right way of putting it, in respect of this project. So what does ACE bring to the table as that community organisation, that community-owned organisation?
1: So I think for me, it's about doing things on a, on a local basis. And I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here in terms of community development workers, and but it's about looking at what does our community need But actually, what does our community already have? What have we got at our disposal? So is that all that age old sort of what's strong and not what's wrong approach um, that ACE really takes? So it was looking at what have we got in our community? And we have a wealth, a a huge amount of people who have experience. We have a huge amount of people who have had cancer or who have supported someone or who are carers or who have lost somebody. And grief is such an isolating or can be such an isolating experience. Some people turn in um, and they don't look out elsewhere. And I think that having connection to community, whether that's through a weekly group or somewhere to go to have a cup of tea every so often, that is what ACE can offer. It's a starting point. It's connection. And we know the ripple effects that connection to community has increased social um, interactions, um, increased confidence, increased skills, all those sorts of things. So by placing a bereavement peer support group within a community centre that is down the road from, from where you live, that is accessible, that you've perhaps been to a few times before to visit the cafe, perhaps you've been to the gardening group. Um, and if not, it works the other way around. You might go for bereavement, but you might be connected then with the benefits advice that we do or the food bank or the uh, pantry service that we run. So it's all about expanding that support network and not treating this in, in isolation because it's not, you know, we're, we're people we need to be looked at holistically and we have holistic needs. Most people aren't just affected by grief. They might be uh, affected by... Um, monetary problems that have come with the loss of someone. They might be the sole parent now and unable to perhaps bring in the money that they were bringing in before. So we're not what? perfect little things that can fit into perfect little boxes. Mm. Um, mm. And I think that that real community local approach is why this fits so nicely into ACE, I think.
0: Mm. Resonates a lot with the last episode of the preceding episode to this with Martin Weber around the community enhanced social prescribing mm. model that he's Absolutely. developing at uh, the University of York with partners at University of Central Lancashire as well in that sense that the the connections and the social interactions the community can provide are, can help bring about health outcomes for individuals but also well what can individuals Bring to the community, mm-hmm. and 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 what what needs perhaps in in, in terms of social prescribing uh, approaches and, and initiatives, what needs to be invested in communities, yes, uh, in order for it to keep being able to accommodate and sustain, um, you know, social approaches, community and communal approaches of 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 this nature. So again, it seems to be hardwired into this. Well, we
1: absolutely most of our referrals come through social prescribing route actually, mm-hmm. um, so. Mm-hmm people who are perhaps presenting at the GP um, are connected through our wellbeing connectors, then are invited. Essentially, I have a conversation with them over the phone um, about grief space and what it is and what we do and how it might work. And um, I find out a little bit bit about that person. But yeah, I would say about 70, 80% of our participants at grief space have been socially prescribed. The other thing that ACE brings to it really is we've got a really great connection with our our local doctors and our GPs in our local cluster. They know about ACE, we've been working with the, the GP cluster for a long, long time, and we are able and and hope in the future to be able to see the benefits of hard facts of referring someone over to grief space perhaps reduces how many times they visit the gp a year perhaps reduces their need for medication perhaps reduces you know all those other things so yeah absolutely um ripple effects
0: yeah yeah Someone's listening to this and they're, you know, many hundreds, thousands of miles away from Cardiff. What's the likelihood that there might be a similar sort of setup, a similar sort of project in their neighborhood or in their vicinity? Is this common, these bereavement cafes?
1: I don't know. <laughs> um, this is the, the short and sweet answer to that. I would love to see it happen. I, you know, I have this perfect image of it being franchised and and people taking it on and making it their own, and perhaps doing it for specific types of loss or specific religions or whatever it might be. It's a model that can absolutely be used, and you don't need to be a professional to run it. <laughs> you have to be compassionate and understanding and listen. And maybe, I don't know, maybe make a really good cup of tea or bring some cake from time to time. But everything that I bring to, to the group is human values. Is <laughs> that idea of I've had experience where I didn't feel supported. Um, so what, how have I turned my own personal experience into How can we support others? So if there's not something, you know, there might be a time that, or there might be someone that might be willing to take on this sort of thing.
0: I mean, I suppose a similar question then is somebody might be listening to this and they could find themselves either in personal or professional capacity thinking okay some of these are issues that resonate with me because of you know things going on in my life now again may not be able to to come to Elio Kyra to the grief space project but what might be some practical things that people do I mean you talk about tea and cake and it's amazing how much community development starts with tea and cake (laughs) but that sense that well what might I need to or how might I go about beginning just to look at and set up something similar
1: as I said, it it almost comes down to your your personal experience. Um, And I think what is really key to how grief space works is how it works. We invite people to come along. We absolutely understand that we can't change how someone is feeling. We can't make it better. We can't bring that person back. But what we can do is turn up and listen and share. And when you share your story and you listen to others, it can help us realise that what we're feeling or not feeling is normal. And what we do is we challenge that usual approach of sort of offering platitudes or that idea of fixing each other. Mm. We wanna help. When we see someone who is in pain, whether that's from the loss of a loved one or or an illness or whatever it might be, we want to help, we're human. So it's natural for us to want to protect others. Sometimes when we do that, we actually have the opposite effect. So for example, when it comes to grieving, I think we're told so often about how we should be feeling. So it's been, I don't know, three months, it's been five years, you shouldn't be feeling like this anymore. The person that's died would want you to be happy. Everything happens for a reason, you know, all those sorts of things. They're not necessarily true. And what it does is it shuts down that conversation. So if every time you try to open up to someone and that person gets uncomfortable, or if you cry, they tell you to stop and be strong and, and have a positive attitude, that person will stop coming to you. And they'll start thinking, I must be crazy, or what's wrong with me, or why aren't I over this? You know, and and, and I hate that saying, move on, because you never move on. <laughs> you might move forward, but you're never over it. You, you never, you know, fully move on. And I think that when we get out of that idea of wanting to fix someone or thinking someone needs to be fixed, because we're we're not broken. <laughs> um, and that idea of telling someone how to get over it, so you need counselling, you need medication, you need to, I don't know, get get a grip or distract yourself with work. Um, you know, hmm. those are all things that we say because we think it's going to help. But actually what probably would have been better is sitting there saying, this is awful. I don't know what to say. I can't fix it. I can't make it better, but I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to listen. I think if people want to, to set up groups, you've got to come in from, to it from that angle I'm not a professional I don't have the answers no one has all the answers but individuals know what will work best for them and that can take months of trying and what works one month might not work the next month but it's that continual change that continual navigation of your grief and by having a group that people can come to there's no guilt attached to saying it's five years down the line and I, I I still don't sleep well or I still don't do this because you're not hurting the other person if you're saying that to I don't know your mother your brother your your friend their worry increases
0: but it's a variation on that theme around you know what is often done to communities what agencies think communities need rather than actually spending time in and with them to find out what it is that people think the community needs or like you said at the the towards the start, you know, identifying what is is strong and investing in that and building on that rather than what is what is wrong. So again, I mean, I I'm I'm i kind of confessing a little bit here. There's more to do with community development practice with the project than is necessarily obvious when you first you know hear about the project, which I you know I remember <laughs> finding out about and thinking, wow, okay, I didn't yeah. realise that was necessarily a a thing.
1: I think that community in this key, though, isn't it? Like when you, when someone is pregnant or having a child or something, everyone's there offering advice. So this is sometimes not, a, you know, is unsolicited, but everyone is there. Yeah. And if you need anything, yeah. I'll be, you know, um, if you need a shop or if you need, I don't know, more baby girls. I don't have children. I don't know if you could tell. So we're absolutely scrambling here, but um, but <laughs> we don't always have that necessarily at the end of life. So. You, you don't always have that community connection. You know, you have antenatal classes or, or wherever it might be. You don't have anything like that to prepare you for, how do I support someone who who's at the end of life? How do I prepare? You know, I, I'm already feeling grief and my, my person's still here. You know, what is this? Why am I feeling like this? Why am I, mm. you know, upset? Or why am I reacting in this way? And it's that lack of conversation, that lack of language um, and, it absolutely needs to be at community level because we don't need everything from professionals. There's absolutely a time and a place for bereavement counseling and and, and more um, sort of specialist services, absolutely. But there's also a space for holding space for your neighbor, having those conversations, understanding when is the time to listen and when is the time to not fix. Shut up and listen.
0: (laughs) yeah yeah to get out of the way almost and just let the yeah get the healing happen the contrast to the start of life and pregnancy i think is absolutely brilliant and and so evidently the case as well i mean I, again it's it, it almost kind of like woods for the trees thing here um i have you know, three kids of my own um exactly what you're talking about but yeah it's it's a uh, marked contrast, I guess, then in comparison to to end of life. And
1: and this is a sort of, we're going off on a tangent a little bit, but it's hard not to sometimes. Um, I I think it's quite interesting, the contrast, because when people have birth plans, it's not a, this is exactly what is going to happen, and this is how things are going to go. You kind of have, this is what I want to have happen, this is what I anticipate is going to happen, but if X, Y, and Z happen, then these are my backups. And I think that that when we're thinking about people who are end of life or who have an understanding or a terminal illness, we don't have those conversations necessarily. We talk, you might have heard the phrase a good death, you know, what is a good death? But I, I think when you're planning for that, it has to be the same approach. It has to be, okay, This is this is what I want. This is an ideal. But Pay medication might be needed or something else might be needed or actually I wanted to be at home but that's not realistic because I can't fit the bed in my house you know whatever it might be there's got to be backup plans but with two I, I don't know we, we don't have those conversations
0: and it's become quite salient hasn't it of late in the UK because of course we've gone through some uh, difficulties at the minute with respect to these parties that Prime Minister was involved in things like that and people are citing the loneliness and the difficulty in which they were saying goodbye to loved ones and and paying their their fa- last mm-hmm. respects and perhaps not being able to do it in a physical sense not being able to be with mm-hmm. people in their final moments in hospitals and hospices and care homes and the rest of it those precious final moments that process through which people are saying goodbye to, to loved ones has become <laughs> almost you know t- sort of headlines in, yeah. in themselves and it can,
1: i think it can complicate grief if you have, and we all have expectations of how a, a funeral might look for someone, um, of how, mm. uh, you know, if someone's been unwell for a long time, they might have had advanced care planning in place to have a think about where they'd like to, to die. They might have opted to die at home, but actually the pandemic has meant they've, they've died alone in, in hospital beds with amazing staff and, and, and support from, you know, those care professionals, but missing... Holding their loved ones' hand, and it is frustrating. And you know, with, without getting political, um, it is frustrating. But you look at the Queen; it's a perfect example. She sat there um, on her own after her husband of however many years um, had died, and, and she sat at his funeral alone. Yeah, and yeah. and we see. I've seen it in the communities. I've seen people. Um not be able to visit, not have the funeral they expected, have a funeral of five or six people, have to think about who should be at the funeral. And then how do you how do you create a hierarchy or an invite list for a funeral?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we often talk about in terms of community development, things like, you know, phrases like capacity building. To what extent, I wouldn't expect you to betray any confidences, but to what extent have people maybe come through the group having started as someone seeking some of that support? Mm-hmm. But now maybe have adopted, I don't know, more of a facilitative role, and is hosting and welcoming mm-hmm. people to that group, or maybe helping people out in the community to signpost them to the to the group. To what sort of extent has there been that sort of journey? If that's not too hackneyed. A, no, a it,
1: it is happening. So what I really like about the group is it's, it's it's not a course or anything like that. You don't have to come week in week out. You come when you want and you share as little or as much as you want. So some people might come, and I've had this happen, come the first time and think, I'm not gonna share, I'm just gonna sit and listen, uh, and maybe I'll have the confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people where the opposite happens, where they've come, I'm not gonna share this time, and then within 10 minutes, they've told us um, you know, that, their story, and they are, are sharing things that they've never shared before. But what I'm I am seeing is the more people that are coming back, Time and time again, whether that's every week or uh, here and there when they feel that they need it, they're taking more of a role. And at the beginning of the session, we talk about you know those listening, those compassions. We're not fixing this, so there's a reminder at the beginning of every every session. So we're creating that culture where we're not fixing people. We're hit. We're sitting. We're sharing. We're witnessing what they're feeling and and you can see that coming out in people's responses so someone might share and someone else might come back and say wow you know I, I don't know what to say but I'm really glad you shared that with us can I tell you about a experience that I had that was fairly similar so we're starting to see that and it's lovely because I become more and more redundant <laughs> And as a community um, development worker, I view that as my job. My job is to help yeah. set people think, help things up um, a little bit of facilitation, get people confident, get people understanding, and and, and navigating and moulding what what the aim is, so it becomes theirs, and then it's theirs then to take in uh, in whatever direction they choose. So the the sessions where I say very very little are the sessions that I think are the best. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and again, anyone listening to this probably can relate that experience and draw those parallels with other things. Whether it's around community learning, mm-hmm. whether it's around about you know volunteering, whether it's around about you know mental health activities, work helping people with addiction and all the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely. More in common with a project like Grief Space, uh, with bereavement cafes than perhaps people certainly myself would initially think perhaps Mm -hmm. really um, is the case. And so therefore I suppose to extrapolate further from that is that actually if people think that this is something that does need to be developed in their communities, mm-hmm. uh, with their communities, then actually the skill set, they probably do have the basics Absolutely. in place. Here isn't necessarily the specialist sort of knowledge and training in palliative care or or anything like that, or counselling, for example. Um, maybe there's a bit more that they already have, be asset-based, than perhaps they, they realise. 100%. Yeah. My final question is, I think it's fair to say, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but Ely and Kyra are in Cardiff are predominantly sort of white working class communities. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose there's an increasing secularism within those sorts of, of communities. To what extent might this mm-hmm. look different? If we were in areas where faith of, of, of any denomination, where there are stronger, uh, larger kind of congregations or connections that are based on faith, would there be something similar happening within all those mm-hmm. already existing kind of networks and structures?
1: So I think it's important to note that as as well as Ely and Kyra, uh, we do also work with people in the communities of Riverside, Canton and Poncana. So that's where our cluster, um, sort of our 11 GPs, Um, surgeries are based. Um, So we have got quite diverse communities within that. But when I look around the grief space room, it does represent or reflect really that the more Ely and Kyra communities, perhaps more that white working class. Again, one of the things that we do as community development workers is we say, right, well, who's missing? Mm -hmm. Who's not here? And why aren't they here? And I think that is historical. Um, I think that there's a a number of of reasons for that. If you look to any GP surgery, any NHS list, uh, any major cancer charity, the same communities are underrepresented. But what I really see happening, or what I would love to see happening here, is this is a model that, like I said, that could be franchised, that could be picked up and and manipulated and used in, in every type of community because it is based on those, those human Mm -hmm. values. It's based on compassion. It's based on understanding. It's based on listening and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who (laughs) leads these groups because we all share that. I think it would be beneficial. Or interesting to think about how, for my role, how could I just support a few different key volunteers or a few t- key different people, whether that's faith based, whether that's um, to do with a specific condition, whether that's to do with age, whatever it might be. Perhaps my role is to think about how I can support people to set those things up. Mm-hmm. To set up their own grief space that is specific to their their specific needs, whether that's on a local basis or a needs basis. Could we have a grief space for young people? Could we have grief space for people of a Muslim background? Could we have grief space for people who are affected by the death of a, a, a sibling? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely we can.
0: If someone's listening to this, assuming that you would welcome them getting in touch, but they wanted to kind of hear a little bit more about it, get beneath the skin of it a little bit more, what would be the best way of getting in touch?
1: Um, so the best way would probably be to give us a call. <laughs> um, so if you if you just popped in Ace Action and Kyra Ely into Google, Our website will come up and all our our details are on there. And there's further details about um, where grief space fits into. Um, So it fits into the Ace Compassionate Communities Project. So there's a number of other things that we do as well relating to death, dying and bereavement. But all that information is on the website. And I'd be really happy to have conversations with, with whoever might be interested whether that's a professional or someone who's thinking about coming along themselves.
0: And Ace has, uh, you know, got a wide range and portfolio of different projects taking place, but they were all very much built on, uh, you know, asset-based approaches, mm-hmm. very much alert to the opportunity to co-produce projects, co-produce interventions with people and encourage people to get in touch with Ace generally across the piece with everything that they do. Absolutely. A terrific organisation and a true yeah. asset to, to, to Cardiff, well, certainly to Kyra and Ely. And I'll drop all of that in the, the show notes as well so really grateful for your time kimberly we've had any number of dates in the calendar to get this done but i'm really pleased we've done it as well because i've you know i have you know i like to think there's always something that i learn when recording these and very there is if i'm honest there's probably more in relation to this project in relation to this episode than most And, and and i'm personally grateful for, for that as well as your as your time and like you said it's one that we all we all we are all going to encounter at some point um mm-hmm. there's no point pretending otherwise i don't suppose yeah thanks once again and really best of luck with everything you do and i think it's a terrific project and um probably you know bringing a huge amount of you know meaning to people's lives at a, at a difficult time for them as well and uh yeah as i said all credit to you
1: Ah, thanks, Russell. I could honestly talk about this for for hours and days, so I'm quite impressed that we've got it down to such a short time, (laughs) so…
0: Thank you for listening to the Community Development Podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at comdevpodcast, C o -M m d e v t podcast. And to support the podcast and help it share learning, connect the workforce, and raise the profile and the merits of community development approaches, want to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the CD podcast.